0: Lord Jesus, I thank you for Sarah. Thank you, Lord, that as she comes today, Lord, that her confidence isn't in anything else but the authority of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that as she preaches, that, Lord, she would know the anointing of your Holy Spirit and she would know the joy of being carried by you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: I'm excited. It's so cool. There's nothing like God's presence, and moments like these really make you expectant, I feel. It's like He is here. He wants to meet with us. He wants to do something specific in each and every one of our hearts. So, uh, even those things that you've kind of put aside, the things that you don't pray about, the things that yeah, subconsciously you've just, God cannot enter that area of your life. It's just something you leave to the side. He wants to meet with you and speak into those specific things because he's an all-encompassing God. And I'd like to just quickly pray for us for that as well. Lord Jesus, when you open our hearts. We surrender everything of ourselves before you and we ask that you shine light where we are in darkness, where we've lost hope, where we've lost our way a little bit, where we've just cast things to the side, saying that there's just no possible way that this could change. Lord, won't you help us to come with expectant hearts, knowing that you can do absolutely anything. Amen. Awesome guys, my name is Sarah, and I am married to Peter Dirk, who is sitting over there, and he was explaining to Gourney just now, he said his name is Petey, so now you have the explanation. <laughs> it's Peter Dirk, but it's a very English church, so you just go with Petey. Um, I've been in One Hope now for eight years, I came as a student in first year, and now I'm just trying to figure out what it means to be an adult, i am just stayed around. That if you're visiting or are new here this morning, I wanna say a huge welcome. You are so safe here, you are so welcomed, and you can become part of this family. One of the things I hold most dear to my heart about One Hope is that if you invest in the people in this community, they can become the most amazing version of family you've ever experienced. So I would really encourage you to do that. So we're currently in a series at the moment, going through the book of Peter, Um, And as a church, we've titled it Hope-Filled Exiles. And what Peter encourages us within this book is that he tells us the truth of who God is. He tells us the truth of who we are. And he also tells us how we can live our lives out as foreigners in this world until heaven comes. We've titled the message for this morning, How Now Shall We Live? And I would almost add something to that. I would say, since we know who we are, how now shall we live? I'm a firm believer in playing to one's strength, so I, and I like you guys, so I'm not gonna force you to listen to me read the passage of scripture. Reading is not a strength of mine, but I would like to invite Stephen up to read it for us.
0: So guys, I'm gonna be reading from the ESV, uh, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 13, and we'll continue it into chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along or also on the screen. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the lord is good
1: thank you so much stephen So this is the word of the Lord, and today we're gonna pull out three things that Peter implores us to as Christians. And you might remember if you were here last week, Gareth preached on the first verse of this um, piece, and it starts in a series of imperatives that Peter urges us towards. And an imperative, by definition, is an authoritative command or an essential or urgent thing. So when we see imperatives in scripture, we should really pay attention we can often come to a section of scripture like this though and pull out those commands and think we've got the point. We like to make a little checkbox list out of them that we, um, know what, we know what it says and we don't need to understand anything more. But what Gareth reminded us of last week is that if we come to an imperative in scripture, an authoritative command, and think that we can obey it by sheer willpower, it will crush us. We are hopeless without the power of the Holy Spirit working through us, and God knows this. That's why he sent Jesus, right? To save us from our total depravity, our total inability to do things out of our own. We must also remember that Peter, the author of this book inspired by God, gives us these commands, knowing all too well it's impossible to do by yourself. This is the same Peter who Jesus had to rebuke, saying, get behind me, Satan. Because when Jesus told his disciples of his upcoming death, Peter said, that will never happen to you, Lord. We'll never let that happen. And Jesus responded by saying, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the same Peter who, after that, when, the, the, when, he was, uh, when Jesus was coming to be arrested, Peter cut off the high priest's servant's ear and Jesus had to tell him, listen, like put away your sword, and Jesus had to heal the ear. This is the same Peter, who having walked so closely with Jesus, still denied that he followed him three times after Jesus' death, because he was scared of what would happen to him if he admitted that. So when we read what Peter is imploring us to do, we're in the company of someone who knows intimately the uselessness of acting without God. He's made the mistake of acting in his own strength, thinking that he could do the work of the Lord. And so from this place, he wraps these imperatives within the scripture in two things. An imperative sandwich, if you will, He doesn't just give us the what, the command of what we should do. He wraps it in the who and the why. Who should obey this command, and why, the reason that the command should be obeyed. And God's designed us to have a why, right? everything that we do has a reason, whether it's a good reason or a bad reason, our actions always stem from a root, a reason of why we do something. We're made for the why, and we're given it here. So we're going to look at the three W's throughout the three imperatives within the scripture, the who, the what, and the why. The first one we see in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the who we find if we backtrack a little bit in Peter. The who is the born again. It's those who follow Jesus who should obey this command. Now the what, the command, is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully, not partially, fully. So what's the reason for this? Why should we hope fully in Jesus? Well, by definition, hope is inherently future oriented right? When we say we hope for something, it's always for something in the future. But the Christian hope is distinctive in two ways. First, it is certain. We hope in an unchanging future guaranteed to us by God. And secondly, it is imperishable. The Christian hope is everlasting and is threatened by nothing that can happen in this world. There's nothing else that we can hope in that is like that. We live in a country where we're surrounded by hopelessness. It's actually crushing to even dare hope in a changed future if what we're hoping for is in anything other than Jesus. But Christians need only hope in Jesus. Why? Because we're born into a living hope. That's what it says in Peter 1 verse 3. It's imperishable, it's unchanging, it's untouchable, it's perfect, it's guaranteed. No matter what happens, this hope is sure. It can get you through anything. Just like we sang this morning, we we, we can think that we're surrounded by everything else other than God, but it's Him who surrounds us, it's Him who fights those battles. We can sing it is well with our soul because of our sure hope no matter what happens. Tim Keller said, the glory of the Christian life is that we have a hope that overwhelms grief. It doesn't eradicate it. It doesn't, it sweetens it. It overwhelms it. I've recently been through a time of extreme grief where I was crying for days. I actually couldn't see through, like I couldn't see properly because my eyes were so swollen and it was, it was really, really not nice, and it's so chaotic, and so sad, and so heartbreaking, and my, I was physically sore, my heart was physically sore, my stomach was, was physically sore, but in all of that, I had this, this sense of being carried, and I realized that my, my response of grief was absolutely appropriate in a broken world. That's, that's not gonna go away, but the sense of this un- changing nature of God was the thing that really carried me. And I realized that that is the Christian hope. It's that no matter what happens, you can hold onto the sure hope of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that can happen that will break, break you if you hope fully, not partially, fully in Christ Jesus. So fellow believers, we must hope fully But remember, no command can be accomplished in your own strength. You're not just gonna say, all right, I'll hope fully, and then boom, all of a sudden you're completely satisfied, you don't have any anxiety, there's no depression, you're just living your best life. No, to hope fully, we need to be utterly convinced. And so we must ask God to do what only he can do, to bring more revelation by his Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ to know that the hope of this world will not shine a candle when you look at the glory and hope of Christ. There's nothing like it. And if you're sitting here today and you don't follow God, you don't consider yourself a Christian, I want you to know that God is inviting you into a hope that will never, ever let you down. I know that you've put your hope in all sorts of things, and they have let you down what you've been looking for is a sure hope and God is offering it to you. You will never ever regret putting your hope fully in Jesus. So to summarize that, as born again children, we are to hope fully in Jesus because he is a secure, sure and living hope. Let's go to the second imperative. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Aren't you glad you came to church today? You found out all you have to do is just be holy like God is holy, right? It's not not too difficult. But let's look at those three Ws, the who, the what, and the why. So who is Peter addressing? Who's he giving the command to? Anybody? Obedient children, God's children, right? He's calling those who belong to him to be obedient. The who is critically important here because you cannot divorce the what from the who, meaning you cannot obey this command to be holy if you are not a child of God. It is impossible. So here we must note that Peter is speaking exclusively to God's children. But let's look at the what. What is he commanding? He starts the what off with what we shouldn't do. So he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, don't let your life be shaped by the same desires that you had when you were ignorant. If your life looks the same as it did when you didn't follow Jesus, then you're being shaped by that former ignorance. And that can sound quite offensive if you're not a Christian, but the truth of what Peter is saying here is, if you don't follow Jesus, then you don't possess the knowledge of the truth. And by definition, ignorance is a lack of knowledge. But what does Peter say we should do now that we know what we shouldn't do? It's in verse 15, he says, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So instead of being shaped by your ignorance, in other words, your lack of knowledge, you should be shaped by your knowledge of God, then you will be holy. Still a difficult one though, because we've let the world decide what holiness actually means. So when we hear holier than now," it's used to describe somebody who's kind of self-righteous. We'd say, oh, they're just holier than now." Or it's used to describe people that follow the rules to an absolute T, that's what being holy means. But Peter's quoting out of the Old Testament here in Leviticus, that, that section where it says, you shall be holy for I am holy. And the Hebrew word for holiness, is something that I cannot pronounce, and I will not be attempting such things, but what it does mean in English is to cut, to separate, or to cut it off. So when holiness is referring to God, it means that he is transcendently above us. He's not like anything that we can imagine. But when holiness is applied to a person, it means that we are set apart we are separated unto God. Holiness is far more than following the rules. It's an attitude of the heart that says, I am set apart for you, God, use me. Are we holy as God is holy? Are we set apart unto God? Do you look set apart, do you look different? We cannot be holy if we act like fish being pulled by the current of worldly theologies. To be set apart for God is not to ignorantly go with the flow. To be set apart is to be humble and ready ourselves for for God to use us for his purposes, right? Everything we do, everything, should be distinguishable from non-believers. The way that we spend our time, the way that we rest, the way that we speak about people, the way that we parent our children, the way that we talk about our bosses, the way that we run businesses, the way we do our job. In all things, we should be set apart with a conscious and humble heart that says, God, use me. If we're having the same debates as the rest of the world, if we're getting into the same arguments that the rest of the world is warring over, if we speak about other people the same way the world does, if we conduct our lives the same way the rest of the world does, then we are not set apart and we are not being holy. And we are commanded as believers to be holy, to be set apart. So why then? Why should we be holy? comes to this quote from the Old Testament Testament again, you shall be holy for I am holy. We're called to be holy because our God is holy. We're called to be holy to look like our father. We must be set apart because we belong to him. This is good news. This is awesome. We are part of his family. He is ours and we are his and our identity is wrapped up in that of our God's. And that's what being part of a family involves. For example, when I'm trying to defend my behavior with what I believe are very legitimate reasons for acting the way that I do, Peter Dirk, much to my dismay, will often seem very uninterested in those reasons. And he says things like, in this house, we never do that. He says, in this family, that's not who we are. That's not what we do and it's rooted in an identity, right? As a people, as a family, we will not do that. So in summary, Peter is saying, be holy because that is who you are. That's what being in God's family looks like. It's an awesome, satisfying thing to be holy. Leave behind the enslaved life you used to live where you were ruled by the desires for the things that never made you flourish. Don't be ruled by the things that crushed you. That's not who you are. Be who you are. You are his. Be holy because your God is holy. It's a difficult one, right? Because we often don't feel holy. Okay, so now we must be holy, but we also are holy because we're in God's family already. Super tricky to understand, right? So we are holy, but we're also being made holy, and one of the most helpful illustrations we can use to describe this is pick a married couple who's been married for a while. So Gareth and Nadine are right in front of me. So how many years have you guys been married? <laughs> we are not off to a good start. <laughs> Twenty-seven. Twenty-seven. Set to verify. Final answer, hey? Okay. <laughs> so Nadine, would you say? that Gareth is perhaps a better husband now than he was on the day that he married you? Definitely is the answer. (laughs) I did ask Gareth this uh, uh, earlier in the week and he said, I don't know, ask Nadine. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, even though he is a better husband than he was on the day that he married Nadine, he is no less her husband on the day he married her. On the day he married her, He was her husband, and today he is her husband. No more and no less. So we become what we are, right? Does that make sense? So children of God, be who you are. Be holy because your God is holy. We're on to the third one. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Again, let's look at the Who? Who is Peter giving this command to? Anybody? Nobody? Good. Children, good. Those who call him father, those who are his children. And Peter tells us, he gives us a description here of the father. He says, the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And this can sometimes feel like it doesn't align with God's character of love and grace. It's difficult for us to hold God both as the judge and the one who unconditionally loves us, but he is equally both. And whoever you are, you lean one way or the other, but we should always be looking to hold the tension between these two. We can't just say, well, the God I know is more loving and kind, like that's, that's my God. Because then what we're doing is we've fashioned a God that we desire, a God that we want. And by definition, that is an idol, right? We need to hold the tension. But this is not an unsettling truth to know God as judge. Again, remember who's writing this, Peter. Peter, who denied Jesus three times amongst a myriad of other sins, his failures are recorded in this book that billions of people, past and present, have read. This is not a person who quietly went through life with excusable sin, right? So when he talks about God's judgeship, We're in the company of someone who has sinned greatly, and yet stands fully secure, fully confident, knowing that the blood of Jesus Christ allows him to stand before God holy and blameless, as he calls him Father. If you're a child of God, you are holy and blameless before the Lord. God is both the just and the justifier he himself made the way for us to become more to become holy and blameless because of his sacrifice so that's who god is that's who we are so what what are we being commanded to says conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile other versions say live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear again Peter reminds us what we learned early in the book: We are exiles. This is not our home. Our home is still coming. And in our exile, he commands us to conduct ourselves with fear throughout this life, also can feel quite unsettling, that it's critical to note what we are being commanded to fear here. What is Peter saying we should fear? God himself. Not the world, not its money, not its safety, not its economic state, not the government, not the opinions of others, not old age, not who you're going to marry, not dying alone. Don't fear that worthless nonsense. The command here is to fear God, fear the right stuff. Even as Christians, we can get into a state of, we wanna look holy, so we fear people knowing the sin around us when we're actually supposed to confess it, when we're supposed to grow, we're actually trying to look so perfect. That's not fearing the Lord, that's just fearing the people around us. The command here is to fear God, fear the right stuff. And when we fear the Lord, it's, it's fantastic. The way we live and experience the world starts to line up with reality. Oswald Chambers says the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you you don't fear God, you fear everything else. We live in an age where morality is kind of determined by popular vote. If enough people decide, that something is right or wrong, then it is so. God is not reverently feared. But as a Christian, we know that God has ultimate authority and holds the absolute truth of what is right and wrong for every living thing. We believe in one source of truth, regardless of what is socially or culturally acceptable, at any point in history. God is our standard. And we only abide by that if we fear him and only him. As soon as we move away from that, we start to fear the things that Christians have no business fearing. and That misplaced fear manifests itself in so many ways. One of them, is that we start to accept god's truth not based uh, accept things based on on things that are not god's truth instead we start to use other christians as our benchmark for right and wrong we subconsciously decide oh because that leader does it it's okay oh because everybody else in the life group speaks that way oh it's actually okay Gossiping becomes normal in Christian communities. Racism can become normal in Christian communities. Frivolous spending can become normal in Christian communities because what? We are not fearing God. It's all a result of misplaced fear. It's far more uncomfortable in these situations that we'll find ourselves in To call things out and be obedient to what God calls us to. You'll be the person who's judging or the person who doesn't like to have any fun, whatever people might use to defend themselves. But let me be clear. I'm not saying that it's not good to look up to other Christians, to have role models and disciples. To be in community is infinitely more valuable and glorifying and sanctifying than being in isolation. All I'm saying is that when we start to use the people around us as the ultimate source of truth for right and wrong, we have stopped revering God. He is no longer the standard. And what Peter's telling us to do here, child of God, fear God alone. Another symptom of misplaced fear is insecurity. How often does fearing man lead to acting like we are not a child of God, like we are an orphan who must defend themselves? Think about if you feel accused of something, not being good enough, or someone has said something behind your back. Our immediate response doesn't come from a place of looking to God for ap- approval, feeling secure. Immediately, we defend ourselves in insecurity because we can't possibly have someone say that about us or think that about us. That is an orphan response. That is fearing the wrong things. A few years ago, I was in Eckerstadt Mall basement parking lot. Some of you know this story. Um, and it was the end of the day, so it was very quiet, and I was just paying for my parking uh, ticket right in the basement uh, parking. I was on the phone with my mom, and um, so I wasn't fully concentrating, but I was paying the ticket, and I felt kind of just this light brush on the side of my bag, so I quickly looked if my wallet was still there, and it wasn't. But if you know the bottom of the Acrestap Mall parking lot, you'll know that There's the parking machine, and then there's like a vending machine. And there was this guy just standing to the side with his hand like on on his leg like that, and he was buying something, very casually. So he was the only one around, and I saw this little brown corner in in just the side of his hand there, Um, so obviously that was my wallet. So naturally, I said, please give me back my wallet. Um, and immediately he got very defensive. So he came right up in my face trying to intimidate me, and he told me I'm lying. He said, I don't have your wallet, you're lying. So that evoked a response in me where I grabbed him, I left my stuff, grabbed him and rammed him against the wall (laughs) and started to scream at him (laughs) to tell him to give me back my wallet. And then he started screaming, yelling that I'm crazy, because now, like, there's people coming down, the poor cleaning lady is trying to look what's going on, and he's like, she's crazy, she doesn't know what's happening. Anyway, that, that aggravated me even more, because now he's not only telling me I'm lying, he's telling me that I'm crazy, and he's making the people around us believe that as well. And eventually when security came down, they didn't even take him away from me because they were like, this doesn't look like you, the victim here. <laughs> but that response, if I go and analyze it, I was completely aggravated that he was accusing me of something that was not true. And like, I could have got my wallet back in a much more civilized way, where I just said, give it back, not screaming, not being violent, you know and it just kind of evoked this orphan response of I have to defend myself. I can't have these people thinking I'm crazy. I can't have this guy telling me that I'm lying. So an orphan response is when we defend ourselves because we fear everything but our heavenly father. One hope, let's be a community characterized by fearing God and nothing else. Let's be a community who doesn't justify our behavior and unforgiveness of other people the way the world justifies it. Let's be a community of believers where unwholesome talk is not welcome in any area of our lives. Let's be a people who stop ourselves in these moments of unholiness and misplaced fear and say, sorry guys, that's not the behavior we called you out. I'm sorry, and for that to be called out as well. Let that be normal in our communities. I have an example, we were having dinner with Cora and Sergio on Friday night and I just said something out of tune, and I'm literally preaching on this, right? And I just had to say, like, that is not okay. Like, no one excuse it for me, I'm sorry. I'm just, in that moment, stopping that kind of conversation, stopping that kind of dishonoring. And I think that should be natural for us. That should be a normal response to say, let's stop that right there. Let's be a community who are children of God, who fear Him. Make Him the standard, not the Christians around us, not the world around us. So what wrong stuff are you fearing? Where is God no longer your standard? Is it provision, acceptance of parents or friends, hostility? from looking different? Is it people's opinions? When we fear the Lord, we have no other fear. When we fear the Lord, we need not fear anything else. But we cannot do any of these things if we fear man over God. And we also cannot do it in our own strength, which leads us to the why. Why should we fear God? Verse 18 says, Because children of God know that they have been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from their forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Children of God, fear the Lord, because you have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And Peter was witness to this ransom, He watched the blood of Jesus pour out as he hung on the cross that we, the wretched sinners, can hope fully in Jesus so that we can be called holy because our Father is holy and so that we need not fear anything apart from God. The futile ways of your past have been paid for. You are new. You have a new identity Be who you are.